of Genesis 1. We're continuing our study, and uh, so much of what we uh, were looking forward to covering last week, we get to cover this morning. So we're, um, we're grateful that you're here. We're grateful you're with us. And uh, we are going to read verses 26 to 31 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Father, we have watched you create. We have heard you create everything, Lord, every non-living thing and every living thing. And now, God, we watch and we hear as you create us, mankind. Um, Father, thank you for your word that is true and that reveals to us who you are. And God, how you reveal to us who we are. We praise you. We thank you. We pray that you would help us to walk away from here changed now by your spirit working through your word in our minds and hearts, in Jesus' name. Well, we didn't, again, intend for this to be a third part, a separate part from the rest of creation, but here we are, and it's a blessing that we've been able to study, and it's a blessing when it's God's plan to be a part of God's plan. And so that was God's plan, and so here we are. And it's a blessing here now to study these verses together about how God made men and women people human beings. And there are lessons, there are implications that we've not covered in chapter one, where as we're closing this chapter out, we've talked about a lot, but there are so many things we haven't talked about. But Lord willing, as you continue to study on your own, the Lord will reveal these things to you. He will teach you and me individually, separately, and together. And now we're here in these verses studying and learning, and our target is our heart. As we study, as we, as we read the Word of God, as we study it together, as we've talked about, the target is always our heart, but the path to our target is through our mind, through our ears as we hear, and through our mind and route to our hearts. You know, physically, there are certain heart procedures that need to be done while the heart is beating, while the heart, while the heart is moving. And so the best way to do that is not to stop the heart or not to go through your chest and just open you all the way up. It's to go through your leg or through a vein in your neck. And, and so the doctor can access the heart through a different way and, and to do the things that need to be done. And that's what we're doing with the Word of God. We are targeting our heart. We're going through our minds, our ears, our eyes, 
And the Lord blesses that. This is important. This is important that we do it this way because for most of our time in the world, our flesh is attracted to the way that the heart is all, the, the world is also aiming for our hearts. And the world approaches our hearts the same way through our minds, through our eyes, our ears, and our senses, and appeals so strongly to that. And so as we study, we're learning about God from God so that He can speak into our hearts. He can teach us this word to us about himself. He tells us about himself. He also teaches us about us and about this world. And so, every time we come to the word of God, we are confronted with a different way of looking at the world, a different way of looking at ourselves, a different way of looking at who we are and what we're here for than the way that the world gives us to look at all of those things. And then we're confronted with a decision. Well, if it doesn't match, if what I think, if the way I'm thinking, the way I'm believing doesn't match with what God has said, will I change what I think to match what God has said? Or will I reject what God says? And this is really going to be brought home for us this morning, um, especially with so many contemporary ideas coming at us, the world has been able to push some of those ideas maybe into our minds, into our hearts, and we may not even have realized it in some cases. And so this is why we come to the Word to to learn from God and to be changed in our thinking, to learn how to learn from Him. this This is the forming and the shaping of our worldview, how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we need to change based on what God says. So we've already seen that God defines existence. He, he defines the existence of everything as he begins creating. And, and we've seen that God has made distinctions to bring about the form that is now evident in the world around us from, chaotic, from a chaotic world to a formed world. Where there was nothing, brought, God brought everything. He divided it up. He portioned it out into all that he desired and wanted. The scope, the breadth, the height, the length, the depth, everything about it. God has divided it up and separated it into what we see today. And then he created the atmosphere so we can breathe, the land and the oceans and all the vegetation. He made those distinctions, those divisions, and he defined form. And then he prepared it for life. So that even while everything was ready for life after those first three days, God brought fullness in days four, five, and six. And we just looked very briefly at the variety of life that God brought forth last week. And it was God who created the the creation that God made had no power in itself. It had no ability in itself to bring anything about, to do anything. But God has that power. God has that wisdom, and it has all led up to this moment now on day six. All that we've seen until now has answered some of our questions, and here are the answers to many more questions that the world is asking, that we may be asking, that we may have some answers for, we may still be wondering about. God tells us here how to answer these questions. So on day six, again, we're looking at day six and how God fills the earth Verses 26 to 31, and we're going to look this morning together at five features of the creation of mankind. As as God crafts, as he creates men and women, the first man and woman, uh, we're going to see five features of this creation. And number one, in verses 26 and 27, we're going to see and hear as God consults with himself. God consults with himself. Notice the pronouns in verse 26. 
God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Three times there are the first, pl- first person plural pronouns that God is using. So the same God who we've heard speaking everything into creation who has said, let there be light and there's light, now doesn't say, let there be mankind. Now says, let us do this in our image after our likeness. He continues to speak, but now there's at least one other person in this dialogue God's having. It used to be that autocratic monologue, right? God says, and so it is. Now it's this dialogue, and he speaks. It's a different part of creation. God's consulting with himself, with someone or someones. Who is it that he speaks with? Is it creation? Does he say to creation, now let's make mankind in in our collective image? Well, the problem with that is the question of what part of God would he have in common with any part of creation enough that that commonality would be what we would be in his image of. That's kind of a confusing way of saying that. But if you look at rocks and trees and dirt and and fish and birds and mice and elephants and snakes and cows, what of all of that would have something in common with God enough to make us in that kind of image? If we're made in the image and likeness of God plus something else, there's got to be some, something in common that we would all share with that. And, and it, we look at it and we can't see anything that would actually make any sense. So if it's not creation, there, there's nothing that's in common with God with creation and, and otherwise that would not set us apart from the rest of creation as, as God's going to say here to us. So it's not creation, but some believe, well, then God's speaking to the angels. God's talking to angels. Let us who are spiritual beings, be uh, making man in our image. And the first problem with that is that we've read the entire context of the Bible up to this point because it's only been the first 26 verses, 25 verses, and the angels haven't been mentioned yet. So that would be a very difficult idea to, to force into the passage. But secondly, verse 27 helps us define exactly who it is that's speaking and who he's talking to and with. Verse 27 says, so God created, again, this is God, the Elohim, that majestic plural God, singularly created, whoever was involved with creating mankind in our likeness had to be God. He created man in his own image, not the image of him and someone else plus something or any part of creation. He repeats it just so that we're sure, in case we missed it. In the image of God, he, singular, created him, male and female. He created them. So when God says, let us make man in our image, he cannot have been speaking to anyone but himself unless he either changed his mind, let's make man in our image, and now, never mind, just kidding, I'm going to go with something else, right? That's, That's not something God's going to do. Or... The other party said, no thanks. (laughs) Let's make man in our image. No thanks, God. You do it yourself. And that doesn't make any sense either, right? Isaiah 55, 11, God's word will accomplish the purpose that he's got for it. He will succeed in that. So it certainly wasn't creation. It, It wasn't the angels who are not mentioned. And because whoever this is has to be God himself. And it certainly wasn't mankind because mankind's not created yet. And you're not going to make mankind in mankind's image. That's part of God's point in Job 41.4. Remember, as he's reproving Job, correcting Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
You weren't around. So then who is God speaking to in verse 26? Well, we've already seen in verse 2 of this chapter that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was there with the Father. Well, what do you mean by he? We believe that the Holy Spirit is God, a person of God. We sang about it this morning in a couple of the songs, and it was a, it was a blessing to be reminded of that truth. Well, where do we get that? Is, that? is that scriptural? Is that a biblical idea that the Holy Spirit is a he, a, a, a person who is God? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, in, in verse 19, your body, believer, your individual body, in, in chapter 3, it was our bodies collectively as the church, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6, your body individually, my body as a believer in Christ, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, a temple is a place of worship. The divine God person that we worship is present in the temple of our body when we have repented of our sins and believed in Jesus Christ. So if, if there's a Holy Spirit within us as temples and, and a temple is a place of worship, um, well, we've either got a rival God or the Holy Spirit must be God or he wouldn't be making us a temple of that Holy Spirit. And so God's not going to set up a, a rival with himself, right? I mean, if we come to faith in Christ, he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. He's going to make us a temple of that Holy Spirit. So he simply cannot be a force either. You know, temples are raised up to worship God, not an aspect, not a part of who God is. We don't have temples and, and we don't worship the righteousness of God. We don't worship the holiness of God. We worship God because of those traits. And so if the Holy Spirit was just an, an aspect of God, if he was just a, a trait of God, his force, his moving power, well, we wouldn't worship that. We wouldn't have a temple set up for the worshiping of God, even God the Holy Spirit. If we become a temple of the Holy Spirit, that means that he's God. The Holy Spirit is God. And so in Acts chapter 5, you remember that Ananias and Sapphira came to church and they wanted to make a big show and they sold the land that they had and they brought the proceeds to church and they said, this is all the money that we got from selling that land. We're giving it all to God. See how great we are. Those words aren't particularly, you know, specifically in there, but that was the idea of what they were saying. And so as Peter confronts Ananias, he asks him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And Satan is a person in this, in this question. Satan, the person of, of the devil himself, not a force, but a person. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Another person in that verse, a person that you can lie to or lie against. And then as Peter finishes, he says, you have not lied to man, but when you lied to the Holy Spirit, he says, you have lied to God. For that matter, you've not lied to a force or a movement. You've lied to God when you lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's much more we could consider, but this isn't meant to be an exhaustive study, but one more to reveal the personhood of the Holy Spirit because he lives within us, believers, because he has taken up residence in us. When we sin, Ephesians 4.30 says that that grieves the Holy Spirit. That it makes sad, sorrowful, full of sorrow, distressed. That's what the word means. It's the same word that was used to the disciples. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the disciples were sorrowful. They were grieved. They were distressed. 
The Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin, and that doesn't happen to a force. That doesn't happen to some kind of power. It happens to the person of God. So God speaks to the very present, the very real, the very living Holy Spirit who is here present with God the Father in creation. But there was another person present. We find out much later that Jesus himself is also present here in creation as God creates everything. If you will, hold your place here in Genesis 1 and turn over to Colossians 1. And this is, this is important for us to see that, that God the Father, who we've, been, we've seen creating in Genesis 1 all along, Paul says to us in Colossians 1 that he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light who is the creator of light, God is. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. It says that he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That son has brought us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now here's what he says in verse 15. This son of God, this Jesus that we know him as, that's what we call him, that's his name. He, in verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I think that's everything. But he says, just in case, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That sounds sort of exhaustive, right? That sounds sort of exhaustive. So in Genesis 1, Paul is revealing to us, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us as he inspires Paul and as he writes Colossians 1, that in Genesis 1, Jesus was there. Jesus himself, the glorious image of God himself, the perfect image of God was there. So the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and with Jesus creates everything. And, and especially here in this verse, verses 26 to 31, as God creates human beings. God's consulting with himself and himself only to make a special part of creation. So immediately we learn, even before God creates man and woman, that human beings are different from the rest of creation because we get to hear the conversation between God the Father with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, as he's crafting human beings. Now the Hebrew people, Israel, as they read these verses, as, as Moses gave them to them in the wilderness, they would not have had all of that information that we are blessed to have today with the three-in-one God. They would have had some, some notions here, but, but what they would have seen is that, that God is some kind of amazing, full of awe being, that he can consult with himself, and that he's so, so powerful and so wise. And so these verses, these words bring an instant awe of God and an increased value for whatever it is that he's going to do that's going to be made in his image. That leads us to the second feature. Number two, in verses 26 and 27, God creates man in his image and likeness. In God's image, mankind is created. Now, what's not mentioned is as we saw last week, ten times in chapter one, as God creates, they, the, his creation is according to its kind. According to its kind, ten different times. But here, mankind is not made according to his kind. Now, does that mean that he doesn't have to stay within his kind? Well, no, it means that this is another higher level, uh, another whole level of creation over everything else that he's made. The words image and likeness mean resemblance. Mankind resembles God in some way. 
in some distinct way that no other part of his creation resembles him. We know from the rest of scriptures that creation sings the glory of God. It proclaims, it reveals, it shouts God's glory all the time. It reveals him in some way, but humanity resembles God in some way. How is it? How do we resemble God? Well, there have been some pretty creative and interesting answers. People have said that mankind's capability for morality is what that means. We're made in God's image, and we can tell because we have a moral capability. And people have said, well, no, it's personality. It's the ability to reason. It's self-consciousness. And and it's a combination of all of these things together. It's it's facial expressions, the ability to make faces at people. (laughs) Some of you, oh, those aren't faces. Those are falling asleep. No, that's (laughs) being able to do things with our faces, having deeper emotions, walking upright. You know, those those are all things that people have said that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And those are ways that mankind is different from creation, but that's not the full definition of what it means to be made in the image of God. See, where those attempts go wrong is in trying to define what it means by limiting certain parts of us to God's image. God doesn't say, let's create man and parts of him will be in our image. Let's create man in totality in our image and likeness, meaning the whole person of man and woman. So it's not just our physical traits of walking upright or making faces or our mental capacities of reason or self-awareness. It's not just our moral capabilities. Our entirety is created in God's image. In total, we resemble God. Now, we know that sin has gravely and seriously marred that image, but to this point, we're not there yet. We haven't gotten there in Genesis. But mankind didn't lose bearing God's image in the fall. More than that, the Bible does not consider us to be divisible into separate parts. You can't say, well, you know, when I stole that candy bar from the store, it was my physical body doing it. My spirit didn't do that, right? You can't, you can't divide yourself in half. You can't say, well, you know, when I sin, it's my physical outward body, but inside I'm still holy for the Lord. God doesn't divide us up that way. He says, no, you are a person, a whole person, So think about what it would mean if being created in God's image only meant facial expressions. (laughs) What if you had an accident? What what if something affected the the muscles or the the ligaments, whatever's in your face to make your face do whatever it does? (laughs) What if something happened so that you couldn't do anything with your face? Would that mean that you're less in God's image at that point? Well, no. What if you couldn't express moral capabilities? What if you couldn't express emotion? Or if you couldn't speak or walk upright? Are you somehow then less in God's image? Well, no, of course not. See, the the reason for the dignity of human life over and above the dignity that's inherent in all of creation that God has made is because we're made in his image, period. Not in this way or that way, not this part or that part. God, the distinction maker, makes the distinction between all of creation and human beings. They're separate. They're distinct. They're of higher value. There's human beings and then there's everything else. So it includes anyone who is a human being, young human beings, old human beings, unborn human beings, disabled or differently abled human beings, athletic human beings, black, white, brown, red, green, whatever, male, female, or confused People you agree with, people you don't agree with, right? 
Human beings are made in the image of God and have inherent dignity and value and worth because of that. So great is God that those who are made in his image become greater than the rest of creation. They become set apart. And so the value of a human being is not dependent on our definitions, our understandings, or our divisions that we come up with. Human beings are meant to resemble God, to join in creation that shouts God's glory, but bring even a greater kind as we exist in resembling God in unique ways, in different ways. See, this is essential for our worldview. You may have already picked up on that connection. Humanity is to be understood from the rest of creation. But the world's philosophy tells us you're no more than a slightly further along evolved animal, right? You're just a little further along the evolutionary process than other animals. And so that worldview is constantly pushed into our minds and down into our hearts. And so that can be something that will impact and affect the way that we think, the way that we make decisions, the way that we view the world. And God says, no, that's not what it is. (laughs) Mankind is made in God's image. Now, there is one distinction between humans that God created, that God intended, and it's not race. It's not color. It's male and female. But notice that both male and female are made in God's image. And that's important too. Because men are not greater than or more in the image of God than women are and vice versa. They're different, but they're equal. And we'll see a little bit more about how different they are as we get into chapter 2. But neither one is less or more an image bearer of God than the other. Those, that's the distinction God makes between human beings, but the distinction doesn't become which one's more in the image of God or which one's God's image. They're both made there. And so this is how we define our life as human beings. That means the definition of who I am, who you are, has already been decided and spoken to us and given to us by our Creator. That means the definition of who I am is not a social construct. It's not a matter of debate. God says you and I, all people, are made in God's image. And you are either male or female. Questioning that is not a decision. I mean, coming up with other categories for human beings is not something that I'm qualified to make. That's not a decision that that God allows me to make. That means we should not be surprised when people who do not submit to God, to his word, make further distinctions or question what God has said. People who reject God's word and his sovereignty will reject his order. They'll reject his distinctions, his divisions, and all that God has set up to be part of his glory, to be screaming and shouting and proclaiming and singing his glory. It means we do not base our worldview or our understandings, and this is where, we, this is where we, we need to understand, we don't base our understandings of these divisions based on what we think and, and our reasoning and, and our rationing, rationalizing capabilities. We don't say there's only male and female because that's obvious. We don't say there's male and female because that just makes sense. We say there's male and there's female because that's what God says. Right, so, so as we're forming our worldview and as we're thinking about everything, as we're comparing what we think and what we say and how we think to God's word, we've got to keep in mind that when God says it, that's the reason <laughs> that we believe it. And so we're not, we're not called to argue <laughs> 
with people about how sin, how going against God's distinctions is rationalized or reasoned or argued. That's not, our, that's not our position. That's not our business. Of course, people that reject God's word are going to reject what he says in his word. So our reason for believing and what, what we do is to believe this and to teach this and to love his word so we can know himself, so we can know ourselves better. That means there's no less dignity for any human being, whether they're married or unmarried, whether they have children or do not have children. Your dignity, your worth, your value does not and cannot come from what you can do, what you're able to do, what you can't do, what others think about you, how you compare with other people. That, that cannot be part of your thinking about how you are valuable to God. Your worth comes from being God's design, God's creation of you as a human being. So listen, that means if you're online and you're listening right now and you're the family pet, (laughs) you're the cat or the dog or the hamster or the fish or something, this doesn't apply to you, right? (laughs) But if you're a human being and you can't hear this or you can't see what's happening or you can't get up out of bed, you're a human being, you are not too much of a drain on society. You are not a big burden on people You're not worthless or valueless because of what you can't or wish you could do. You are still made in God's image. This is why murder is wrong. This is why abortion is wrong. This is why euthanasia is wrong. This is why slavery, as we've understood it, is wrong. This is why any other way that a human being can be made to be reduced in value or worth is wrong. It's wrong because God says so. In his word. Now, some of you are saying, well, you know, those things are obvious. You don't even have to say those. What are you trying to, trying to impress people? No, we're, we're, we're saying these things because this is what God has taught us in his word, that, that mankind is different. Mankind is, is full of inherent value because he carries God's image. Now, that's who we are. What are we supposed to be doing as human beings in God's image? To the extent that we're able, verse 26 says, let them have dominion over the fish, the birds, the animals, all the earth. Mankind was designed and created in God's image to take on the role of having dominion over part of creation. Now, as we saw last week, praise God that he has not given us dominion over day and night, the sun, the moon, the stars. Praise God for that. He hasn't given us domain even over the weather. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, ah, I read some articles, there's cloud seeding. Have you ever, have you ever heard of that? When, where man says, I want it to rain right here. <laughs> we're going to kind of force the issue. And we're going to get a plane and we're going to drop some salts into the atmosphere. And the water vapor will, will collect around the salts and it'll force rain. It just hasn't worked very well. <laughs> as much as mankind tries. And even if that were to start re- working a little bit more reliably, that's a far cry from actually controlling the weather making the hurricane stop, making a tornado not happen, making more sunshine or rain or wind. So mankind doesn't have that responsibility, but we human beings have the responsibility for this planet to take care of it, to be stewards of God's creation. How have we been doing as stewards of God's creation? 
How have you done as a, as a person or in your family or as a whole? How are we doing taking care of God's creation? Well, there's a third feature that God shows us when he's, and when he's making mankind. Number three in verse 28, God blesses and charges man. God blesses and charges man. Now, God blesses his creation of life, and he gives the, wish, the wishes of well-being and success. That's, a, that's, a ble- that's what blessing means. It's a, a well-wish. But God, in his blessing, doesn't just wish. He's able to bring it about. And so he blesses, he speaks the blessing, and then he enables the blessing. Despite the sin that comes later and that, that we find ourselves so in, enveloped with, inside and outside, mankind is blessed with fruitfulness, with life, with, with beauty, and we, we still enjoy it today. So God, in, in, he begins this blessing and the charges the same way that he blessed the other life, be fruitful, be, uh, multiply, and fill the earth. As a quick reminder, be fruitful means not just survive, but thrive, flourish, right? Multiply means have babies, give birth to more image bearers of God, and then fill the earth means to spread out over the earth. That means it's obedient to thrive, to have babies, and to move around the earth. It's, you could call it obedience, you could call it worship, to thrive, to flourish in this life, to have babies, to move across the earth. It's worship for God's glory when we do it for his glory. It's an act of worship. That means mothers, when you're giving birth, it's, a, it's an act of worship. And that's probably one of the farthest things from your mind at that point. <laughs> But this is how God begins his blessing and his charge. There are two more, but let's pause here for a moment just to consider two of the more fashionable, contemporary, negative implications of what this means. Human population and colonialism. First, human population. Over 200 years ago, a man by the name of Thomas Malthus, he's an economist and a demographer, somebody who studies population. He said that population growth was going to so, uh, was speeding up, it was going to so speed up, it was going to get so fast, it was going to outpace how fast we could grow food. And so he said that there were some natural and some unnatural checks that were going to need to happen on human population. Some of the checks would be natural, like mass famine, people would begin starving all over the planet. Natural disasters like floods and earthquakes and and man's propensity to kill other man in war, those would all kind of check the population. But then some unnatural checks needed to be implemented like family planning, like late marriages so you'd have fewer children, and then even celibacy. Now some of those ideas were carried forward, especially into the 1960s and 1970s. And they began to induce a fear, even a panic, that overpopulation of the earth by human beings would lead to mass starvation, global disorder, widespread death. It was the end of the world because there were too many people on it. In the 1970s, when these ideas were going around, there were a little more than three and a half billion people in the world. There are today over seven billion people on the planet. So those predictions of mass starvation Global disorder did not happen. Yet many people bought into the ideas. They've continued in those ideas. In 1968, Paul and Anne Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb. They predicted in the 70s that the problem would become so large that hundreds of millions of people would starve to death. And so they gave some solutions. Here are their solutions for how to stave off the mass population starvation. 
First, make contraception widely available. Prevent children from being conceived. The second, allow, even encourage, abortion. Whoops, some of the children got through. Some of the infants are going to be born. Let's kill them before they can be born. That will, starve, that will stave off this dire end-of-the-world destruction. The third way was to give women equal rights, pay, and opportunities with men so that they would go to work and fertility rates would go down. There would be less children in the world. Those were their solutions. Now, their predictions didn't come true, but those solutions have certainly been in force since then. Now, we're not disparaging women from working, understand, but that was part of the plan to reduce the number of human beings born on this planet by ensuring that women would go to work so they wouldn't get married or so they wouldn't have children. Now, as a side note, in case we're not aware of what's happening, even in our country today, the Supreme Court could overturn Roe versus Wade this summer. There, is, there are cases, there's a challenge right now, there have been coherent, logical, uh, faithful arguments presented before the Supreme Court. It's more than likely that Roe versus Wade will be overturned by, the, by this summer. If it is, that's, it's estimated that 21 states would certainly or would already just automatically implement a ban or a limitation on abortion as soon as it happens. Five more states are likely. That means 26 of 50 states would have some kind of limitation or ban on abortion. What an answer to prayer that would be. But that's not over half the population, just because it's over half the states. Actually, about two-thirds of the population would still live in states where it would not have any kind of ban or limitation. But continue to pray with us about that. Okay, side note, sorry. But the people that came up with those solutions, those three solutions, they stood by them and they are still being uh, encouraged, still being pushed. Because, in Ann Ehrlich's words, in an article to the Los Angeles Times in 2011, as she said, quote, perpetual growth is the creed of a cancer cell, not a sustainable human society, end quote. And so some have begun to push for more abortions, even mandatory abortions, even force sterilize certain people. See, God says it's a blessing for there to be people. God says it's a blessing for mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now it doesn't mean irresponsibility with the planet. It doesn't mean just going out of our way to be careless and negligent with what God has given to us. But it does mean that in this biblical worldview that we cannot see mankind as, in the words of Sir David Attenborough, quote, a plague on the earth, end quote. That's not what human beings are. In fact, biblically, it's a good thing for the land to be inhabited by people. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just read for you what Ezekiel says specifically to the land of Israel. That You have these verses, I believe, in your notes. Ezekiel 36. This is what God says to, to the land of Israel when he brings the people back. He says, But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel. For they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you. Oh, how is God for land? What will that mean? You shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. 
It's a blessing from God for the land to be inhabited by people, tilling it and working it. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will let people walk on you. Did you hear that? That was God's blessing for land when people are walking on it. Even my people Israel, they shall possess you and you shall be their inheritance and shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children. Therefore, you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. <laughs> it, it was a blessing. It was a promise of, of goodness and beauty and, and fulfillment for the land to be used. What defiled the land in the next two verses was their sin, their rebellion. That's what defiled the land. So brothers and sisters, do not buy into the increasing rhetoric from much of the world that you, because you exist here, are a plague on this planet, that you are causing problems that your existence here does more harm than good. We may be doing harm to this planet. We may be harming it in some way, but living here, existing here, is not what does that. Don't allow that worldly view of mankind to influence your thinking as you make decisions. That's human population. Next is colonialism. It's fashionable today to disparage the efforts of people, particularly the 19th century, who colonized parts of the earth. They're seen as all being racist, elitist, misogynist, evil capitalist, money-hungry, selfish, and murderous. Now, we need to say that no person who reads history would debate that. <laughs> For many, maybe most of the people who were engaged in colonialism the way that native peoples were deceived, the way they were taken advantage of, enslaved, killed. It was all a direct violation of what God says here in Genesis 1 for how to treat other people or other human beings because they were worthy of respect and dignity and value. And there's no excusing the repulsive, revolting atrocities of imperialism, of colonialism that happened. But it wasn't the spreading out and filling the earth that was the problem. Again, it was the sins of those who were participating in that. Mankind spreading throughout the earth was part of God's plan. And whether mankind was doing it right, they, they didn't maybe even realize they were obeying God's will for the planet to be filled with people. And so their motivation may have been selfishness and making money and killing people. I mean, that's probably not their motivation, but that's what they were doing. They were enslaving and killing many people that they may not have even realized they were obeying the Lord by spreading out on the earth, even as they were rejecting what God says for, creating, for treating people in God's image. So we need to ensure that we view the world correctly, not just ourselves, not just other people, but the whole world, everything that's happening on the world, everything that's brought us here to this point today, we need to view this the way God views it and not buy into what the world is going to teach us. Do not feel guilty for your existence, human being. That includes your existence as a male or a female or with the color of skin that you have. You are made in God's image And you exist now in whatever part of the planet you exist in because of God's blessing and his charge. People with darker skin have been historically made out to be lesser than people with lighter colored skin. And nothing could be further from the truth. What truth? Because it makes sense? 
No, it does. But no, that's not our ultimate authority. Our authority is the Scripture. God didn't make mankind black and white. He didn't make mankind brown or any other color that we can think of. God made mankind male and female. Slavery, as we've understood it, segregation, bigotry, hatred, and more came about because of a rejection of God's truth that all men and women are made in God's image. Not because of what the Bible taught. And no matter how reasonable it sounded to science when Charles Darwin wrote on the origin of species, whose full title is on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And as much as it's denied today, the book did lay out a case and an argument for what Darwin called certain races of humans, namely the white race that were supposed to be further evolved than other races, the races that he called savage, low, and degraded. And it was wrong then, as it's wrong today, to believe that any human being is below or above other human beings. But it was started by a denial that God made any of it, or God made any person. Now today, it's much more fashionable to make people with lighter color skin feel guilty because of the atrocities, the terrible things that happened in the past. All human beings are full of worth and dignity, and God bestows that on us as human beings. It's seen in His image, His likeness, no matter what color skin we have or that we see. The idea of segregating human beings into different races is not a biblical division. It wasn't a division that God came up with. In fact, according to scientists who study this sort of thing, it's not even a scientific definition or a division. The concept really didn't even take hold until the middle of the 18th century. Racism is wrong. Again, we may say, well, I know that. That makes sense. We, we got that. But it's not because we got that. It's not because that makes sense. It's because God told us that all human beings are made in his image. Hatred or anger towards someone because of their skin, because of their gender, is wrong. It's clear here in chapter 1 in this blessing from God and in his charges to us that any of those ideas are foreign to Scripture. But then God adds two more parts to this charge. He says, subdue it and have dominion over it all. The words subdue and have dominion are fairly violent in the original meanings, but together they have the effect of take control of this creation and take care of it. Do, have it do what I've charged it and want it to do and blessed it to do. You take care of it. Don't worship here anything on earth. Don't worship any part of the creation. Use it to, to responsibly thrive and multiply and fill the earth. In order to worship God, the the earth is useful to us in those aspects. It's not meant to be left alone. We read in Ezekiel where it's a blessing from God for the land to be tilled, for it to be used responsibly. Otherwise, God would have left it alone. He would have said, don't fill the earth, leave those parts alone. (laughs) So God tells mankind, have dominion over it, be stewards of creation. He blesses us with that. He charges us with that. He enables us with that. He excludes other human beings from that. Do not subdue and have dominion over human beings, but over the rest of creation. Number four, we'll move through these a little bit more quickly. Through Number four and five, but number four in verses 29 and 30, God commits to the continuation of life. God commits to the continuation of life. He doesn't just tell us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He enables it and then ensures it by committing food 
to human beings, to animals. Now, later on after the fall, we'll see it when we get there. God will give us animal flesh to eat also, but for now, it's only plants. But who gives it? God does. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that if God has given food to us, we better ensure that we don't withhold food from those God has given it to. People have used access to food as manipulation and control and punishment, and never has that ever been appropriate to do. That God gave food to people and then you withhold it. Or God gave food to animals and you withhold it. That's not what God intended for it to be. Psalm 145 says the eyes of all look to you, God. (laughs) They look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. That's who God is. God who gives food to animals and to humans. Psalm 136 says he gives food to all flesh. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. That's why Moses says here in verse 30, and it was so. God said, this is my intention. That's the way it was. All life had food in the plants. It becomes part of the covenant that God makes with mankind after the flood. He says in Genesis 8, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest shall not cease. I'm going to keep providing for you on this planet. So that means no causing humans or animals to go hungry. (laughs) Don't get between God and his provision to creation. Finally, number five, the fifth feature of this creation of mankind is in verse 37, that God completes his work. He completes his work. He approves of it, all of it, Every piece, every part, and all of it together is good and very good. It's very good. So what does that mean? It means it's all set up. It's all configured. It's all running. It's exactly the way he wants it. I come from a computer networking background. And, and you, you get all the equipment and you configure it and you get it up and running and it's working perfectly. And then you put people in it and then it starts getting messed up. <laughs> it, it stops working. and God puts people in it and it keeps working. <laughs> It's working perfectly. It has peace. It has structure. It has order. There's no sin, and therefore there's no death. How do we know that? Because God says it's all very good. It's very good. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing out of order, nothing chaotic, nothing that ends life. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, and with sin came death. Right now, there's no sin. There's no death because it's all very good. God has created, he's divided, he's filled it all with goodness and benefit and life and blessing and beauty and everything, all of it in part and then collectively, it's all together very good. There's only life and flourishing and beauty. That's who God is. That's what God does to give life and blessing and fruitfulness. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so it would continue. It would continue from that point on. So what do we take from this this morning? What do we take with us throughout this week as we, as we hear from the world as other ideas are com- constantly bombarding our mind and route to our heart? How do we think about these things? How has this improved your view of humanity? Has it changed any part of how you view other people? Do you need to change any of your words, your actions, your thoughts, your behaviors toward other people? Have you taken lightly God's image in human beings? Are there any human beings around you that you really couldn't care less about? (laughs) That you need to think about differently? 
Are there other ways that we haven't even considered that, that this view of humanity influences? Our, in our notes for application, elevate your view of human beings. Lift higher your view of human beings as you elevate your view of God. Because human beings are not worthy of value because that just makes sense, because they're like me, because I agree with them. We can see how that can fall apart. We view God higher and higher and his image bearers higher and higher. Nowhere near as high as God himself, but Christians should be elevating mankind, dignifying and, and respecting human beings. Next, strive to make disciples of Christ. Strive to make disciples of Christ. Every person around us is made in the image of God, but that image has been marred. It's been ruined. It's been stained by sin and rebellion against him. There is one who is the perfect image of God. We read about him in Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God, Jesus himself. He's the perfect image bearer of God. And he came to this earth and he lived that perfect image. Our job now is to bring people to him. Bring people to him, make disciples of the perfect image bearer, the one who was God and is God, yet became man. The one who was God and is God, who became man, who never sinned one time, yet takes our sins from us when we surrender to him, when we believe in him and we turn from our sins. The one who perfectly loved God the Father with every fiber of his being. The one who loved other people perfectly. We need to see everybody around us as being in the image of God and being in need of the image of God to be restored. And that happens in Jesus Christ. As we follow Jesus, as we turn to him, we we believe in him, we turn away from our sins and turn to him in faith, God starts working in us to make us into the image of himself in Jesus. In Colossians 3, we learn that our new self When we're regenerated by that Holy Spirit, we're renewed at our conversion. Our new self is being renewed in the knowledge of God after the image of his creator, the image of God in Christ. Urgently remember to see people around you as those who are made in God's image and those who need to have God's image restored. That's what God tells us to do. Father, we praise you and thank you. God, we lift up and exalt your name. You're so wise. You're so powerful. You're so good. God, you are perfect in all your ways. You're righteous and perfect and even kind in all of your ways. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us who you are, for revealing yourself to us. God, we pray that you would change our thinking about who you are, to be elevated, to be exalted. God, we we can't even imagine and understand all that you are. But God, what you've given us is high. It's lifted up because you are. So God, we pray that you would do that in our minds and in our hearts. Father, we pray that that would extend to the the people around us, that we would see people that we don't agree with, people that don't agree with us, people that hate us because of our love for you. God, that we would not hate in return. We would love, we would share the truth of your love in the image of who you are. God, we pray that you'd give us a greater urgency of respect and of love toward those around us, particularly, God, those who have no idea that your image in them has been ruined by sin. Father, help us to know how to reach them, how to love them, how to speak to them, how to help them, Father. Help us to help one another, God, as we struggle in this life, as we struggle with with things that are being said, the, the, the teachings that are all around us, God. We pray that you would sanctify us, set us apart, 
Use us for your glory, for your will, for your purposes. We praise you for Jesus. We thank you that he's the one who makes all of that possible. And not just possible, but sure. We praise you. We look forward to his return in his name. Amen.